I think it's about that time, maybe a minute after. It's good to see everybody this morning. Before we get started, we'll go to our gracious Heavenly Father in word of prayer. Our dear Lord, thank you so much for this beautiful Lord's Day that you've given us, for the rain, for the magnificent weather that you've bestowed on us lately. It's We're in all of your artistry and, and all that you do for us, both from a visible standpoint of what we see around us, but also the, the things that you bless us with every day that we are so blessed we, we can't help but take them for granted so often. I ask you to help us to be cognizant of what you've done for us, not only materially, but spiritually through your son, through your kingdom, through the relationship that has been restored, that we are able to approach you in this manner. We're so thankful for that and for the time that we have to spend together to edify one another, to draw closer to you, to learn more about you because the, the bottomless well that is the wisdom that is included in your scripture, it just, it can never be plumbed completely. So we're so thankful that we can do this together and learn from one another and, and to see you more clearly so that we can reflect you as we go back out into the world. Be with us through the remainder of this class and service and help us to, to do what would be acceptable to you, but also help us to in our understanding and give us wisdom and help us to apply these things. All these things we ask in your blessed son's name. Amen. <clears throat> so I apologize that you are stuck with me um, today with Barry being out of town. I forget where he went for the meeting. Oh, he's in, he's in Texas. He's down in the vicinity of Houston for that meeting. Yes, everybody keep them in your prayers, especially their sweet little granddaughter who is recovering. Um, hopefully they'll be able to spend some time. I know Teresa is, but hopefully Barry will be able to spend some time with them while they're down there as well. We're continuing this morning in Luke 11. We wrapped up Luke 10 last week. If you remember, we actually closed out at the very end of Luke 10 last week talking about Mary and Martha and specifically the difference between the priorities that each of them were setting and where that sort of falls into. Am I too, too soft or too loud there, Newton? Okay, I'm just hearing a feedback up here, so. Not, not exactly sure. I can modulate if you want me to. So just give me an up, up, or down, down, and I can, I can adjust. So we wrapped up last week talking about Mary and Martha, where Martha was you know, so, so trying to do a good job to, to provide for everybody that was in their house, and Mary was sitting there, sitting at the feet of Jesus, and, and Jesus rebuked Martha, basically saying that, that Mary had her priorities in the right place. We're going to continue our theme of looking at Luke as how we can convey, how we can study this letter with someone that is unfamiliar with the gospel, with the scripture. So I, I, it's different to look at a class or to teach a class from that perspective than it is to just dive into the text and say, you know, what can we see? It, so I'm trying to keep myself on track with that approach. Um, so help me out if I, if I go off uh, too far one way or the other. But I definitely encourage class participation um, as we, as a great military tactician once said, no plan survives first contact. So I have a plan, but where we go with it can definitely um, you know, adjust as necessary. So I look forward to hearing what, what you all have to say. So we're picking up at the beginning of chapter 11. And we'll read, we'll read the first 12 verses here in just a moment. But we've changed place, we've changed time, we don't know exactly where this place is. 
but it, well, we'll just switch over and, and actually read those. Read the, this part of the chapter first. So if you will read with me, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 11 of Luke. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And when he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive our sins, as we, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Then he said to them, which of you has a friend who will, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are in bed, or with me in bed, I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him. So looking at, at the very top of this section, just rereading verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. If you were to do a word association, I'm sure people have played that game or, or done something similar just take a few seconds and do a quick word association in your mind when you think of Jesus. What words do you attach to him? It could be things he said, things, what, I mean, just what comes to mind? Jesus, what would you associate with that word as you contemplate that? So just think about that for just one second. What would be the first thing that you would associate with his name? Pardon? Lord? True? What else? Savior? Okay. What about things that he was engaged in? Teaching? Prayer? How impactful was Jesus' prayer life on those that were around him? We see him praying. We see him praying before making big decisions. We see him praying before, I mean, we see him praying a lot. And it's not just little side prayers. It's all night. It's very, very, very engaged prayer. A, his prayer life is something that had, a, had a, an astounding impact on those who were around him. We don't know exactly what John taught his disciples vis-a-vis -vis prayer. We know that he taught them something because we see that right here. But we do have the ultimate teaching we're about to get. We have actually, this is the second time we've seen something similar to this. This is post Sermon on the Mount time, time frame. So it's very similar. So what, 
just looking at this, how Jesus instructs his disciples how to pray. Before we get into the, 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 the meat of it, what are some of the things that jump out at you about this prayer instruction that he gives? Prayer is important. The order of prayer, okay, that's true. Absolutely. So sort of the order, but focusing on the Father, what else? Is this meant to be a rote, do this, say this? No, not at all. How many people do that? I mean, they, Catholics call the, the Matthew 6 prayer, that is the Our Father. It's just, say, you know, 25 Our Fathers and 16 Hail Marys, and, you know, that's your prayer. And people use this as a, this is my prayer, this is all I say. AA, every single meeting of AA, they start off with this prayer. It is, it doesn't mean anything, which it's funny because when you look back at Matthew 6, we are told, let me scroll back up here. So if you look at Matthew 6, verse 5, so this is again, this Sermon on the Mount, different time period, but he's, he's using the same focus here. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Okay? So that's one aspect of prayer that we don't want to emulate. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Then verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. What does that mean? Especially verse 7. What is sort of the historical context of, of that? Does anybody, I know lots of people know. So think of, when he's saying Gentiles, what were Gentiles? Generally pagans. So what kind of action do you think this is speaking to? Verse 7, saying don't do that. There were many different instances where people would just think, if I say this thing long enough, if I say this thing over and over and over again, then the God that I'm praying to will have to hear me because I'm basically battering down, you know, I'm just, I've got to hit a certain, either a certain time period or a certain number of words, and some of it literally was babbling. Some of it was not words at all. Does that just apply to first century Gentile pagans? How does that apply today? That warning in Matthew 6, verse 7. We're learning how to pray by Jesus. How does this warning correlate to our lives? I think we just need to be careful about what's in the heart. God wants to know what's in our heart. He already knows what's there, but he wants us to say it verbally. Yeah. So if we just say something just off the cuff, then that's not in our heart. So we need to speak what's in our heart. Absolutely. So is it possible for things that we are trying to do 
in the right way, is it possible for those things just to become rote, automated? Does that happen? I know it happens to me. You know, where, where else can that happen in our lives? Worship. So any aspect of worship can become, we just do this at this time. Yes, ma'am. There are, there's lots of ways that we can twist worship around. We can make it where it's just, we do this thing and we do this. If you look in Zechariah, and I didn't even think about this until Mara was just talking, but Zechariah, the, the people are condemned because ultimately what they were doing, and I won't go into all the details, we don't have the time, but what they were doing in mourning every, every fourth month, every six, every six month, I think, and fourth month, they were mourning the fall of the temple, but they weren't doing it for God. They were doing it for themselves. They were fasting and praying and weeping, but it was not for God. It was for them. It had become this thing that they did. And God was like, what good is that to me? That doesn't mean anything to me. As we see in many places in the Old Testament, I would rather you not, you know, Malachi, close the doors of the temple. Just close them. Stop doing what you're doing. So if we're not, as, as has been mentioned, if we're not doing this from the heart, if it's not something that we are actively engaged in, then it's pretty worthless. So many have turned this very prayer into the thing that Christ warned about in Matthew 6. Yes, true. For someone who doesn't have a familiarity with this text, I think it would be helpful to point out that people would have known how to pray. Jews mm-hmm. would have had some understanding of what prayer was historically, whether it's the references to people doing it in a grandstanding way in the synagogue or even like with John's disciples. But they asked Jesus to teach them because it's differentiated. Right. And so there's clearly something that Jesus is doing that sticks out from everything they've ever understood about prayer. And the message of his prayer is so simple, but you can tell like the genuine relationship that's there. You can tell the, the things that if we were to not pray the real word, pray those same thoughts and ideas, like I think that's what Jesus is trying to convey. Absolutely. So explaining that to somebody who maybe doesn't have an understanding of this, say, this is something they would have been familiar with, but it was jarringly different. Right. Absolutely. Good point. In fact, you stole some of my, my notes from here in a little while, but I expect that to happen. So, and we're going we're gonna to get into more specifics, but I know for us, so there are two things. We're very familiar with these verses. We're very familiar with those words. So when we're very familiar with something, one can become complacent and not really let them impact us, uh, if it, which is the danger about getting super comfortable and thinking, oh, I've got that. I don't really need anything else from that. There's a lot, as Drew was saying, there's a ton packed in here. There's so much packed into, and which is the beauty of the scriptures, there's so much that's there, there is no such thing as just a superficial understanding. I mean, yeah, okay, there is a superficial understanding. There's no just, this is the basic meaning, and that's all there is to it. There is so much packed into these words that 
Christ is conveying, you know, through his teaching, that we need to constantly challenge ourselves to look at it at the depth that he is trying to convey it to us. On the flip side, and this is where I'm trying to, to maintain in this class, to, we're talking about talking with someone that doesn't have that same level of familiarity, someone that doesn't understand the gospel, doesn't understand, didn't grow up in the pew or hasn't spent a long time hearing the message. We, because we can, as we're about to, dive into individual words and see what the impact is on the overall teaching, we want to make sure we don't overwhelm somebody and make it sound like that the gospel itself is so complex that it's not easy to understand. It is easy to understand, but it can get deeper and deeper and deeper. So we don't want to make it sound like in order to understand what Jesus is conveying here, you need to know super deep, have a super deep understanding of each concept that he's presenting. It's good to have that, but we just don't want to we don't want to frighten people off either or make things seem overly complex or make it seem like you've got to have some sort of secret decodering to understand the scripture. So with that caveat, the first words that Jesus uses in his prayer, our father. So looking at this from a, we understand the depth and trying to take us, ourselves out of the we understand this and have heard this forever. What is being conveyed with those first two words? Our Father. Yep. So what the relationship is. What, again, we don't want to be complacent. What does that tell us? So this is relationship driven. What is that that would possibly blow Theophilus's mind, for one thing, but should impact us the same way. What is that conveying to us? And who is the Father? Who is that? I mean, he, the creator of the universe wants us to call him Father. Not some, we don't have to lead into a prayer with some grandiose litany of whatever, you know, Shakespearean language. Our Father, Father, creator of the universe, master of everything, that, just beyond our ability to truly encapsulate in our brain who this is, our Father. He wants us to address him and approach him that way, which for Theophilus would have been the exact opposite of anything he had ever experienced. His gods were not this God. They were the opposite. They were very, well, they were terrible, for one thing. They were just terrible, terrible people created by men or gods. You know, they, they reflected the worst of mankind. They weren't this. Simple, humble, direct, intimate. So it's not just God, but our Father. And Alan. Think about the other gods. It, you had no intimacy. No. It was... You live to their whims, and whatever you did, you have to figure it out. And if you, and if you, you met, and if you made them mad, you're you're just trying to hope you don't make them mad <laughs> because they're gonna bam and get you. And that intimacy, mm -hmm. the direct connection, the direct speaking to the creative universe, it just should it should humble us every time we say a word. Yeah, that relationship 
that is implied. Again, I, complacency is dangerous because that is something that should strike us. And it's hard to keep something that you're so familiar with. It's hard to keep it new and keep it fresh all the time, but we need to because this is so stunning. It's so outside the realm of what should make any sense to us. It should impact us every day. And I, it's a challenge. We have to ensure that it does because our nature is, I'm familiar with that, good, understand it, versus this is crazy. The creator of the universe wants to have a relationship with me, wants me to talk to him as I would talk to a father. Not an earthly messed up father, but a perfect as we'll see later. So following up with that, Father, may we... So I, there's a, a different translation that I actually really like for this first verse. So the New Living Translation, which is not normally in my repertoire, says, Father, may your name be kept holy. What does that remind you of? Lots and lots of references going all the way back to the initial relationship that God was creating with his people. Anyone else? There's so many references to God being holy. Mm -hmm. and that's yeah, I think of Leviticus. I forget the exact numbers, like 40, 40 something times, be holy for I am, or either words exactly to that or words to that effect, be holy for I am holy. Be holy for I am holy. His people, his children, be holy for I am holy. We can also negatively impact this. How can we? We're praying that we may keep. We're praying that God's name will be kept holy. How can we negatively impact that? By not being holy. Yeah. <laughs> it's a simple thing. Yeah. Just, just by not being holy, you break that bond between so we can profane God's name, which should be terrifying. You think of the over and over and over again in history. You know, people have this idea of God being the hammer you know, in the Old Testament. God is the same God in the Old Testament as the New Testament. It's the same loving God and wants that same relationship. But he executed on judgment. He executed his judgment over and over again because of his name being profaned. So if you look in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 22 and 23, gives us, uh, I think Ezekiel helps us understand in a, in a very concise way. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. That would be a pretty awful message to receive. And he, he executed on it. But we can do the same thing. Our individual lives, if you think about how Christ demonstrated his relationship with God every day, every, every interaction, everything he did, the prayer life that he led, he had an impact on everyone around him that reflected God's holiness, that reflected God's glory. 
We can do the we can do that, or we can do the opposite, and we don't want to do that. So, Father, in ESV, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. So, what do you? So, what is somebody going to ask? Maybe they've got a little bit of information. Where? What is the sort of the trap, or, or, or sort of a? detour that one can take off of that next component. Why is that in there? What are your thoughts on your kingdom come? It could lead to the fact that they're waiting for the kingdom to come. To let them think that, that it hasn't come. And it's sometime in the future. Yeah. Anyone else? So Luke is writing this after, after all these events have happened, after what else has happened? Christ has been crucified. So would this, so again, what's the purpose of what Christ is doing right here? What is he doing? Teaching his disciples how to pray. Would it make a ton of sense to have that teaching Restricted only to those disciples for the next one or two years after Christ said that. It doesn't make a lot of sense when you're thinking in the context of what he's doing. He's teaching his disciples. Disciples don't stop when he's crucified. Disciples don't stop when the kingdom comes. He's teaching us. So he's teaching them how to pray. He's teaching us how to pray. I don't see this constrained by the kingdom that was initiated, that was the new covenant that was brought into being when he was crucified, it just would not be very useful beyond that time period. And there's nothing else that we have in scripture that's not useful. So what is the picture, and this is getting a little, a little deeper, but we need to, and again, not to, you know, blow somebody out of the water that's just learning this, but we need to have a conceptual understanding of what that kingdom looks like and how Christ holds that kingdom to be able to speak to this without, again, making it overly complex for somebody that's brand new to this. What is the end state of the kingdom? I'll ask that. Because there, there is a point at time that it changes that's still in the future. What is that end state? Can anyone, and I'm not asking, I know it's hard because the teacher, the, the leader of the class is asking you to re- read their mind, but there is, a, there is another distinct change that's coming. Heaven. Heaven. What happens vis-a-vis the kingdom at that point? What happens? Jesus passes the kingdom to God at that point. So there is still another major change, a major completion, if you will, that it has to happen. And that is when, in fact, we'll just we'll turn to a, a scripture that could do a much better job than I. 1 Corinthians 15, which is one of my favorite chapters It has one of my favorite concepts in all of Scripture. And it actually immediately precedes this. 
um, the, the lead into this, so we won't be able to spend a ton of time on that just because that's not the purpose of this class. But starting in verse 12, just to get the context, I could start in verse, I could start further on, but again, context is very, is very critical. Starting in verse 12, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection? But if there's no resurrection, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. That's the concept. We could spend a whole class on that. I love, I love the way Paul put that. It is so unique. It, it, it's amazing. <clears throat> Verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, if that were the case, if Christ were not raised from the dead, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who are also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we in Christ have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. But in, in fact, Christ has been raised from, the, raised from the dead, if I can talk, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death by man, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each to his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put into subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Which is a pretty, I mean, we don't spend a lot of time talking about that. We, we talk about the kingdom as it exists. We talk about the kingdom having come. But there's still a future tense to the kingdom. There's still a final state, which is when that kingdom is actually delivered to God. So this is not meant to be, you know, as we talked about at the very, very beginning part of this aspect, people fall all over themselves trying to come up with some sort of future state here on earth. We're not going to spend time going down that path, but... This is most certainly not talking about that. And it's also, I don't believe, just referring to what happens, Acts 2, thereabouts, with the kingdom coming into existence. It's, it makes sense in the context of the way that Christ taught and knowing what is to come with the kingdom that we can pray about the kingdom coming there's also another aspect, so there is, there is that aspect of change. But what is one other part of that kingdom coming that is ongoing, that we can pray about? Established, but his rule and authority and reign into the hearts of people 
Absolutely. So Drew hit the nail right on the head. We want, we know the kingdom exists, but we want our purpose is to help continue to, which is an amazing concept again, back to our father. We are meant to be facilitators of the, the borders of that kingdom expanding, which means we are exposing the kingdom to other people. We are exposing people's hearts to the message, to the kingdom. All people will be subjected, as we say in 1 Corinthians. All people are going to be subjected. At some point in time, they will bend the knee. It would be much more of a preferable outcome to have people willingly see the kingdom, subject themselves to the kingdom beforehand. That is what God wants. God wants all to return to him. So we can be, we're praying for that to happen, but we're praying also that we are involved in that. That's when it gets to there's so much involved, so much couched in these, what would seem to be on the surface, very simple concepts. We're praying that that kingdom expand. We are supposed to be part of that. So we can expand the kingdom's borders, which is pretty amazing. We can actually impact God's kingdom. We can expand the size, scope, reach ourselves. It's not just this thing exists and we can be part of it or not, but we can materially impact those who are part of the king. Did you have a... Okay. So the kingdom has come and he will continue to reign until it comes to its fruition, until every enemy is subjugated. But we can actually, we're praying for our role so it's something that I try to think of more and more. And we've actually talked about it several times recently, just the, the impact that we can have. Yes, ma'am. Oh, on others. Mm -hmm. Yes. I do that noise. Uh, um, so one of the things that I was thinking when I was studying this is uh, he's, when he's teaching them to pray as a... Uh, in the letter following on to the end of chapter 10, that your focus, you have to have your priorities straight. So your focus when you're praying should be on God, your Father, and His will. And not, that's where, so starting out in the prayer, that's where our focus should be, as we told Martha. Uh, Absolutely. And where the priorities need to be. Where you have other things that are needs, but this is where you need to start. Yes. Yeah. And, and I'm glad you brought that up because that reminded me I meant to include earlier. Barry did a lesson sometime in the last couple of months. And he talked about the Lord's Prayer being a model, not just how not pray this thing, but conceptually. Cover, you know, this is what we're supposed to look at, as also has been mentioned a couple of times. This we should pray about. This is the order, priority, God's will, our provisions, et cetera, et cetera. So Barry went through and did a very good, it was fa fantastic uh, sermon on that. We're looking at it a little bit differently, um, but I wanted to touch on that because that, if you haven't, didn't, weren't here for that, didn't get a chance to listen to it, um, I would encourage you to go back. 
and listen to that because it was eye-opening thinking about that from a conception. How do I pray? And just keeping those, again, not doing rote, repeating what's here, but just keeping those buckets in my mind as I'm going through and trying to ensure. It just helps guide my mind. Um, it was, it was out, outstanding. But, and this whole section of the letter is sort of a picture of what disciples need to look like, how they need to prioritize. Um, so there's a, lot, there's a lot as you zoom out, a lot more um, that goes on in this particular part of the letter. Any more comments on the kingdom? We've got about a little bit less than 10 minutes. Next section. So we've talked about, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us this day our daily bread. What is important about that? Don't worry about tomorrow. We've talked about, about that a lot. Be anxious about tomorrow. Um, encourage one another while it's called today. Uh, focus on what you've got right now. Let tomorrow take care of itself. Absolutely. So, this, this audience, these disciples especially, especially the disciples because they were not of, of means for the vast majority of them, some of them were, but for this time period, how much, how big were their pantries? They didn't exist. I mean, it was literally daily bread. You went and got your food. If you could afford it, you went and got it that day. You worked. You went and bought your food. If you didn't have the money, you didn't eat. If you didn't, if your husband died and you were a widow, you didn't eat. You couldn't just go get a job. Oh, you know, there's so many, so many things that we take for granted. We don't think of it as daily bread. It's more like monthly, yearly. You know, we could. How long could we live on the food that we've got in our in our homes? Not that we should. I mean, it's just a. It's a. It's a very distinct difference about the way that we see things versus the way these disciples do because we are immersed in more, 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 more everything than anybody prior to us could ever really imagine. We're praying for God's provision. Is that just restricted to bread in this particular sentence? What does it mean? To rely on God's provision. To rely on God for everything. So it's everything. It's not just I need food. It's ev- everything. Everything that we require. And we, we won't go necessarily down this path, but we're promised. What are okay, I what? What are we promised? that will happen for those that are faithful regarding this. The psalmist psalmist references that he's never seen the righteous begging for bread. Through through the Lord's provision, his people will be here. So our basic needs, not wants, not have-to-haves, not all these other things, God promises to 
to provide for his people. So God has made that promise, and we, we may, I don't know if we'll have time to, to get into the other aspect of this a little bit later, but God's promised us that. Why are we praying for it? It's a, it is a, we are professing our trust and our faith in what he is going to do. Just like from the beginning of services to the end of services. And I've actually heard somebody sometime in the past actually criticize this. Most of the time people say, forgive us of our sins at the beginning of service. You know, at some prayer at the beginning of services. And then somewhere toward the end, somebody does a prayer and they include that same thing. And the person that I was like, how many times did you sin between those two prayers? It's like, that's not the point. It's not the point. We are professing. God has said he's going to forgive our sins. He's going to forgive. He is going to. We need to be cognizant of that. But it's not, forgive me the sins I've, you know, that I've done in the, in the last 30 minutes or whatever since the previous prayer. It is a proactive. You are going to forgive us our sins. It's not, forgive me of these things. It's also looking forward Forgive is not past tense in that case. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us the, what you've promised us. It's not just do this thing right now. It's also looking to the future. We are professing our faith. We are saying that we rely on you. We, again, relationship. You don't want your child to only have a relationship with you where it's like, give me this, give me this, give me this, and not have any other context, nothing else. It's not that. It's, it's the full scope of the relationship. You are conveying to God, I trust you to do this. I trust you to forgive my sins. I trust you to provide for me. I know you're going to. Thank you for doing it. There's so much couched in this, in these small phrases. It's just a ton of information. It's not just a superficial, give us this day our daily bread. Check that box. It's a, it's a mindset of how we are approaching that relationship. We're acknowledging that God's given us blessing. I mean, we are blessed, again, beyond, beyond words. But we're, we're expressing our dependence. He's our Father. His kingdom is going to come. His kingdom's come. His kingdom's coming. We are to be a part of that. The bread, we are dependent upon you. And I know we're running out of time, but ultimately we're to be, as we, as we get a little bit further on, and then I'll just have to. So forgive us our sins as we forgave others. That, that right there, as for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. It's not talking about you owe somebody $5. If we don't forgive others, then God doesn't forgive us, which should really crack us upside the head in that if I expect God to do something 
for me, then I have to be that to others. And we see example after example after example throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, of what we're talking about in that concept. We are reflecting God. We are asking him to forgive us with the caveat, the way that I forgive others. So if we forgive, or if we don't forgive others, we're basically saying, God, don't forgive me. Well, I appreciate your time. We didn't get even half as far as I was hoping, but thank you for your comments, and we'll pick up there next week.